Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The red thread is this idiom from Nordic languages, generally in general Northern Europe, uh, to talk about the theme, the big idea of something uh, and its origin story, which I think we talked about last time, was very similar to the to the process that I was leading people through to to do this decoding. And so I I look back at it, you know, to me that you know when you look back, the past is a straight line. It all makes perfect sense to me, though there was no way at all that I could have predicted that this is where I would have ended up, or or what I would have ended up doing, or even creating. But it makes perfect sense as I look back on it because I created the thing that I wish I had 35 years ago. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Tamson, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am delighted to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I always say, anytime we have somebody back a second time to me, that just says a whole hell of a lot about what an amazing guest they were uh, the first time. You have a new book out, Finding Your Red Thread, which we will get into. But as you know from our previous conversations, that's definitely not where we're going to start. So I thought we would start um, by me asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced or shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Hmm. All right. So I'd say from my mother, who is an anthropologist, uh, to observe what people do and to be curious about why they do it. I would say that's definitely from my mother. From my father, who's definitely who's a, a systems thinker. So he's a submariner. He was spent twenty one years in the navy. Um, 
he he's very focused on on kind of two things I think that I've I've picked up from him. One is you know, have a have a way to do it and be clear about it. Uh, and the second would be my father is definitely like the lone introvert, excuse me, the lone extrovert in our family. Um, and so I think that from him, I have learned to appreciate the, uh, kind of the joy and the unexpected serendipity that can come from being kind of just talking to people and being curious about them. So my mother's very much kind of a quiet observer (laughs) and my father, uh, is it as an engaged, you know, interviewer of people, I think is probably a good way to think about it. And I think that there is value in both. And so, uh, I, I, I can see the lines of both of those influences in, in everything that I do. Mm. So did they, did your parents encourage any particular career paths while you were growing up? Because I mean, as I've said before, a thousand times, the Indian kid sort of motivational speech is you can become any kind of doctor, lawyer, engineer you want to be. <laughs> Uh, no, actually. And I think that's in a lot of ways because uh, of their own parents, first of all. And then secondly, because uh, in a lot of ways, and, and, and a little bit as a result, my parents ended up doing very non-traditional things as well. So my, my mother grew up really quite uh, financially challenged, I think is absolutely fair to say. He, she was a, she was a shopkeeper's daughter, uh, in rural Washington state. Um, their, her family ran kind of the corner store where the gas station was and, you know, the food and, and meat and things like, you know, things like that. And she, she tells stories about how, you know, their food was the food that was past date from the store. Um, and their, my grandmother was apparently quite the dynamo. Um, but, and both of them, both my grandmother, and my grandfather on my mother's side, actually and all of my grandparents believe very, very strongly in the power of education. And so she was going to make sure that her kids went to college and went to a good one. And on that, she absolutely succeeded because my, both my uncle and my mother went to Stanford. Um, in this, in the case of my, Uncle, this was in the in the in the fifties, uh, mid fifties. In the case of my mother, was the early sixties, um, and so that's a that's kind of a big deal. And I think that you know I've never really talked with her about this, but I think other than go to a good, go to college and go to a good as good of a school as you can get into, I don't think that that was dictated very like where she what she ended up studying was very you know was very strongly dictated by by anybody else. So um, you know and she went on to pursue, like I said, a, a doctorate in anthropology. She was very curious about social anthropology. And I think some of that was influenced by growing up so close to several indigenous nations uh, in in the Skagit Valley, like the Snohomish Indians and all of that. Um, my father, uh, so his parents were both teachers. So my my grandmother was a school teacher and my grandfather, uh, has a doctorate, had a doctorate music, music education. And so he was a teacher of music teachers. Um, and so while they weren't, uh, you know, as poor as my mother's family, uh, that was, you know, this, <laughs> these are their teacher salaries. They didn't, they didn't do much. Um, and so my father went to Stanford on the ROTC program. Fun fact, Stanford no longer has an ROTC program because in the sixties, the students burned it down. Um, 
And I think he was just, I, he think he was just fascinated to see the world and the Navy was a way to do that and get a great education at the same time. And so I, I don't think either of them were constrained by that. And they certainly didn't constrain my sister or I in the same way, because we may have talked about this the last time, but my sister went to Stanford also, uh, I'm sorry, my dad did too. Um, <laughs> the one that was like, I'm not even going to apply. Um, but my sister, <laughs> my sister uh, went to Stanford for a theater degree. Um, so she got a theater degree from Stanford. Uh, I refused to even apply to Stanford just, you know, out of 17 year old piss and vinegar, I think. And, uh, um, and I went to Boston university. <laughs> so, and my parents again were very open. I think I was more care. I, I was more interested in making sure I was employable than anybody else in my family was. Um, because, uh, you know, even though I love the arts, I decided to get a, a business degree, uh, both undergrad and grad so that I wouldn't ever have to worry about being employable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, two things, you know, I wonder, uh, did you ever feel the sort of pressure? I mean, two Stanford educated parents, a sibling who, you know, went to Stanford, uh, because I, even, you know, when I look at my sister, she was the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale I and mean, she was at Berkeley after I was, but there was sort of this expectation that this is just what you do. You go to the best damn school that you can get into. Uh, and I always wonder when you have, you know, parents who are so accomplished academically, do you ever feel this sort of need to live up to that expectation? I mean, I, I think I did, but <laughs> again, my, my response was to reject it entirely. Um, yeah, because I, I think the closest I got to aspirational or like, you know, Ivy or Ivy plus is I did apply to Harvard. Um, and I think I, I think I flat out didn't get into Harvard. I don't think, I, I don't think I was waitlisted. I think I was waitlisted at Amherst maybe. Um, but really what I wanted to do when I applied to college was I, I applied to the most, <laughs> it's very funny that I ended up BU because it's, it's not this, but what I really wanted to do was go a very non-traditional college. So I applied to Bennington and I got an early action to Hampshire and I went, applied to Evergreen State. Um, and I was really interested because I was really interested in crafting my own academic journey of kind of inventing but, you know, I was very intrigued by those last three, what they did with independent study and how you essentially created your own, your own path. Um, and I was very interested in that because I had just spent six years at a pretty intense, I mean, no, it wasn't pretty intense. It was extremely intense prep school in, in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was over it. Um, not over school. I was, I was really over pressure and deadlines. Cause it, it, it actually had quite a negative effect on my whole psyche. Um, and I, I absolutely believe that it was part and parcel of why I suffered with a panic disorder for so long afterwards. Um, so I really just wanted to go to a place where I felt that I could make it mine. And that was really my response to everybody else going to Stanford was that that's your thing. I'm going to do my thing. Um, and I'm just going to carve my own path. Like I don't, I don't want to rely on anybody else and mm -hmm. I'm just going to do what I can do and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my own way. So, but they didn't yeah. pressure it. They really didn't. There was like, you can go wherever you want. I and mean, that was kind of the deal that my parents had that they would, they would, they would send us anywhere. They pay for us to go anywhere. Um, undergrad, <laughs> grad school was all on me. Uh, but undergrad, that was, that was on them. Um, and even so, even though they were paying for it, they, they didn't put pressure on any, any direction. I think, I think they really did just want us to 
pursue, do what we would stick with. If that, mm. yeah, I think they would do what we would stick with. I think they, they just wanted to make sure that we were set up well in life from that perspective, but that wasn't tied to any particular profession. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, yeah. yeah. You mentioned this idea of carving your own path. And, you know, I think that that's so much easier said than done. And I wonder, why do you think people fear doing that so much and 
you know, conform to you know, either societal expectations, parental expectations, or, you know, whatever their peers are doing. Because, you know, I, I think even going to Berkeley, I remember thinking, oh, this is sort of this liberal hotbed of, you know, you know, innovative ideas, mm-hmm. you know, really original thinking. And I was like, wait, this place is a breeding ground for conformity. It's all just a bunch of soon to be bankers, lawyers, and doctors. And, you know, the evidence kind of plays out because that's what most of my classmates did. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely easier to conform. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I just, I, there is truly something in me that re- rejects it. Um, I understand it and I know how to play along. And that's definitely, I think, you know, to add another tick in my mother's column, uh, that comes from the observation of people. I understand how I, I understand what I'm supposed to do. Um, but there are times when I'm where it just doesn't feel right. And, uh, by ignoring that feeling, that's, I think that's, that absolutely got me where I got to with panic disorder for a long time. And then once I started getting treatment for that, which started when I was 16, by the way, um, 16, 17, um, I started to become intolerant of that feeling of that feeling of dissonance between, what I was supposed to do and what like every fiber of my being said I needed to do. Um, but I will tell you, like it is, it's a lot harder because you have to, you have to deal with the fact that there is not a path. There's no map as Seth Godin would say, like you don't get to just follow in what everybody, somebody else does. You have to take ownership of that. Like, you know, it's certainly something I discovered when I started my own business five years ago. And one of the things that I often said about it to other people at the time was that I traded the illusion of stability for the reality of control. Um, (laughs) I love that. And it was because it's true, but it also means that you like, it is all on you. And I, I just, uh, I I wish I knew, I wish I could tell someone here, like, here's the secret to like doing your own thing. Um, (laughs) Other than, that I became finely attuned. And I think that was this kind of dark gift of panic disorder, finely attuned to, to, to dissonance to, to any gap, because I, I would feel it physically a gap between, you know, an expectation and reality. And so I spent a lot of my time just trying to, you know, in the early years, try to ignore that gap. But then there were certain places that were just so foundational to me in some way, like where to go to college, what to study that I just, I couldn't, I I just couldn't. And so, um, you know, I could kind of toss off that like, well, I'm going to go to BU, um, mostly because I loved the city and that's why I went. And I, you know, and I, BU was a, a fairly safe school. One could argue it wasn't even the best school that I got into. Um, but you know, it ended up being the right place for me because, uh, I, Again, this is kind of anathema to, 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 to conformity. I mean, the same thing. I was in the undergraduate business school and I'm like, you people, I don't, I don't, I don't understand you people. And mostly because I spent all my time in high school with arts people. So here I am like following like, and, and in with the, the, the business school people. And I'm like, I, yeah, I don't get you. Um, and so I spent most of my time in high school. I mean, excuse me, in college. Um, my college friends are all the people I worked with at the nightclubs on Lansdowne street in Boston. Like that's where all my friends are from. Like, I don't, I don't have like a- anyone who I do have from my college 
years who's still a friend was somebody I met working in the clubs, not somebody who was in one of my classes. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, people like this idea of sort of a, a formula or prescription for, you know, how to you know run a business or how to do your own thing. And I've been, you know, sort of writing and thinking about this idea of, of sort of this distinction between prescriptions and principles. And mm. you know, I realized there's one fundamental flaw in this whole idea of prescriptive advice. There's a variable that throws off all of it, and that's you. Yes. Uh, and people don't take <laughs> yes. that into account at all. It's it's they they tend to overlook context. And yep. um, I guess what I wonder is is how you get people to stop looking for prescriptive advice, which is kind of hilarious because your book is, is prescriptive in it's, a lot of ways. It does, yeah. It, it, uh, it, shh, I mean, on the, it's really hush. Um, it is in a way. And yeah, that is actually a thing that I wrestle with um, and, uh, about it, except for the fact that I feel um, very comfortable with the amount of research that I've done to say, okay, this is about as prescriptive as I can get for you. And then the rest of it, you're going to have to fill in yourself. Um yeah. I, because I think of it more as a framework than a formula. And I think that to me is what allows for the individual that allows for that variable variability. And I think, you know, the way that I frame what you just talked about is that a lot of people are looking for what to think when actually what they need to learn is how they think. And because once you under, understand how you think or how, like, or find ways to think about things, the what to do becomes a lot clearer. Um, you know, there's something I wrote in my newsletter a few weeks ago as an example of this, which is, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to other people about ourselves or, if, you know, we're just like, well, here's what, here's what I think. And a lot of times we don't get into like, well, how did you come to that conclusion? But it's in the how did you come to that conclusion that we actually understand whether or not we're seeing eye to eye on something or not. And the, the example that I drew a couple of weeks ago in my newsletter was like Ultron from the Avengers Age of Ultron, mm -hmm. um, yeah. where, of course, you know, you had two, com you know, two different, completely different approaches to the same answer of protect, protect planet Earth. You know, Ultron is like, well, it's the people that are the problem. Uh, and then you've got, so let's eliminate the people and that's how we're going to protect planet earth. Um, and then, you know, another group who, you know, the Avengers, obviously who are thinking, well, <laughs> we need to <laughs> protect planet earth and maintain the people. Um, and so I think to me, there's really something intriguing. I, I'm just so fit, fascinated about how people think, because if I can understand how people think, and then, you know, with what I try to do with the book help people understand how they themselves think about things, it becomes so much easier to make that more transparent. And so this is a strange word to apply to interpersonal interactions. It makes them a lot more efficient because mm -hmm. you're not discovering kind of too late that, you know, oh, we may have agreed on the ends, but we sure as heck didn't agree on the means to those ends. Um, and ultimately I'm, I'm, I, I've, I think I'm coming to a place where I believe that the things that we need to share with people lie more in the means than in the end. I mean, it's certainly something that I say to my, my business clients that you know, you're never going to be able to sell to someone who doesn't fundamentally value the same things you do or operate from the same baseline assumptions about how the world works as you do. Yeah. So you better be clear on what they are. And it's going to be a lot easier for you and for them if you are articulate those things out loud. 
Yeah, it's funny because um, it reminds me of something Victor Cheng says in his book, Extreme Revenue Growth. One of the things he, he talks about, he basically identifies sort of what he calls the five components of a uh, revenue growth engine. And one of them is, you know, a problem that somebody mm-hmm. has. But the other part of that that is missed often is that people care enough about that problem that they're willing to pay to solve it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think a lot of people just go, well, here's a thing that hasn't been done yet. I'm like, yeah, the paying to solve it. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that I that I've come to ca- ca- have come to understand is that you know, one of the, and I think there's three, one of the key beliefs that someone has to have before they will make a change in thinking or behavior is that they have to consider it worth it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is a that's a sometimes that is a financial calculation, and sometimes it's an effort calculation, and sometimes it's a Sometimes it's a esteem and other people as expectation calculation, um, yeah. because that's certainly what came into play as I you know, kind of <laughs> rejected the Stanford path. I was like, yeah, but it's actually worth it to me to see if I can succeed without without all the legacies. Like, what can I do on my own? That's that's mm-hmm. that's been a that's been an important part, I think, of who I've grown myself to be. Yeah. So before we get into the book, I want to ask you um, one last thing. I know, you know from having read the book that you're a parent and uh, just given sort of this legacy of, you know, elite universities and education, uh, I wonder how you think about education for your children, because, you know, from, you know, from the time that you went to college, I went to college from when your parents went to college, the world is really different today. Yeah. Uh, very. You know, and when I see things, you know, I watch this documentary on the college admission scandal and watching these kids and thinking, God, like this must be such a difficult time to be applying to college because it's this sort of idea that this is basically going to determine everything about how your life turns out is, is kind of the pressure, yeah. the, the message they seem to be getting from the world around them. So I wonder, um, one, how you talk to your kids about this and how you think about uh, educating your own children. Uh, I do think about this a lot. Um, and I think a lot about it uh, in the context that I have, a my older son has just started while it's not a private prep school, it's a pretty intense school here for, for middle school, uh, here in Boston, Boston Latin. It's a very well-known public school, the oldest one in the U S as that turns out. But I mean, it, in a lot of ways looks and feels like the intense pressure cooker of what I went through in my middle and high school years. So like I was inherently not so sure about this. Um, but the thing that he and his father and I were very clear on was that I, I did my best as did his father to like, I, I didn't actually care if he chose to go there or not. Um, it's an exam school, meaning they had, he had to take an exam to get into it. Um, and the way we framed that and his dad and I were on the same page with this was if you want to take the exam, do uh, and if you take the exam, that just opens up your options to where you want to go to school. But you, we, you, you can go wherever you want. Um, so there's there's that piece of it. The second piece of it is that I'm kind of glad that I didn't go the whole legacy route um, because you know even though it's an N of one, uh, I have you know it's a, it's a it's a form of success I think that I have, and I did it with not. You know, it's again, not that BU sucks. It does it. It's a fine school. Um, it's not, I, it's not Ivy plus. It's not Stanford. Um, but you know, I, I've, I have been successful without the additional benefit of a network like 
Harvard or Stanford or, you know, any of the, those top, top, top tier schools would have provided. Um, but at the same time, I think the, the trade-off and to me, it was positive. It was worth it was that I, I wasn't surrounded by the, by the, the need to conform. Um, you know, I felt that a little bit more in grad school, uh, when I, when I, so I went to business school for grad school as well. And, and there I went to Southern Methodist, um, and the Cox school of business. And what was interesting was there, I did, I did briefly conform. It didn't last very long. I mean, it's hard not to conform when like I go into business school thinking that I'm going to go and go work at a nonprofit. And then the job that I got, you know, as a, as a part-time research assistant in the consulting company, like paid me twice what I would get as a full-time position, uh, in a nonprofit. And so you're like, Oh, I'll conform. Um, that lasted six months after graduation from, you know, because I was just like, I can't, (laughs) maybe it was just Dallas. I don't know. But I was like, I, no, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Um, and then took a 50% pay cut and went and worked at a museum. Um, so I think about, I have the belief in my children that they will be successful no matter what they choose to do. And that the path to success lies in spending as little time as possible off of what makes you happy and what makes you useful to other people. Um, because I think it's in the flailing around that we lose time and we lose energy and we lose inspiration. But the more you can, you can stick with the thing, find the thing and stick with it that, that gives you joy. The great. And so we've, we've even said to the boys that, um, you know, I, it's not, we, we want them to go to school school because we think that there's a, that there's, there is value in learn in the, in what school will teach you about how to think, how to learn those, those kinds of things and the variety of those kinds of answers you can find there. Um, but we've also been very clear that if they choose to go to, let's say here in Boston, we've got a place called the North Bennett street school that teaches, uh, fine for preservation, carpentry and violin making and book binding um, like o- old school artisanal crafts. I'm like, if that's where you want to go, or you want to go to Boston Architectural College or something, you know, something like that, like a, essentially a trade school, fine. If that's what you want, do the thing that you love and do the thing that you will stick with and do the thing that will keep you motivated and working because you're going to have to motivate and work for a really long time. So you, you, you need to be, that needs to be something that you love. Um, and so we try to just, we, we try to keep that door open for them in any way possible and as free of expectation as possible. Um, because as I said, I, I, I believe in them and I believe in their success uh, because that, that is what they've already, th- those are the, the, the hu- small humans they've already proven themselves to be. Mm, wow. Well, do this for me. Connect the dots for how all of these different experiences of your life lead to the work that you're doing today and how it leads to this book. You know, they, it is all totally intertwined. I think that some of my, um, you know, some of the, some of the understanding about uh, how I see the world and, and trying to understand why, how I see the world is different than other people. Um, where that came from, where that was painful for, for oftentimes for a long time. Um, uh, I, I, you know, that, that's a thread that's in here. 
another thread that's in here is feeling unheard um, a lot uh, as, you know, from, from, you know, teens on up through college and work and all of that, you know, in the early days of work, I'm sure we've all had this experience where you get dismissed because of youth. Um, that tended to happen a lot with me because I was young. I actually was younger <laughs> than, um, a lot of other folks, wherever I was, uh, I, I, you know, way back when skipped first grade. So I started college at 17. Uh, I didn't turn 21 until, the spring of my senior year, I went straight into business school. So I was in business school at the age of 21, um, graduated 23. Um, and so here I was like, you know, wherever I was, particularly in the early parts of my career, I was always a little and usually much younger than any, everybody else around me. That of course did not limit my feeling that I had good ideas. Um, but I wasn't, but there was so often where either I knew I had a great idea and I couldn't make the case for it in a way that got it across. And so I, I felt like that and therefore I was dismissed. Um, or I often was very frustrated with not having an articulate way to answer something. Um, and so those were kind of these personal threads that I carried forward with me for a really long time. Uh, the fact that you know, I, I hate a blank page. I don't like not knowing where to start. Like, I don't like being told what to do, obviously. Um, but I don't like not knowing, like, just even just give me a framework that I can try on and then just see if it fits and then uh, I'll make it my own from there. So there's that, there's that piece. Um, there was another piece, which, which was rooted in this tension of being this arts kid in business school, um, for so many years. And, um, and the fact that I, that there, there, these, these do, did represent really true two sides of me that coexisted in my head and sometimes well, and sometimes not, which is that I had a, you know, I have a deep love for kind of the passion based things of the arts and deep research and scholar, you know, and, um, uh, scholarship and, and just going deep on stuff. I love that. And also there's a very, very strong practical bent that sometimes works straight up against passion projects. Um, and I, through observation, thanks mom, I realized I'm not the only person who feels and experiences that tension between what's passion, you know, what's passion driven and what's practicality driven. Um, but because I spent so much of my time in both worlds. So, um, you know, I, and I did that all always. Like I, it was just, an, it was always a way for me to get a different perspective on things. So when I was, yes, I was an arts kid in high school, but I was also the manager of the varsity boys baseball team. And so yes, I studied business when I was at BU, but I also got a liberal arts degree in in uh, American studies and art history at the same time. And yes, I went to business school for organizational behavior, but I also got a master's in arts administration. And every role that I took on tended to sit in this kind of intersection between two on the surface competing worlds. So even when I took my pay cut and went back to the museum, I was sitting at the intersection between the marketing and the fundraising departments at a museum, which, which are kind of like, I mean, if you're not familiar with how nonprofits can go against each other with marketing and fundraising, think of any for-profit business and the tension that naturally exists between marketing and sales. It's the same. Um, and when I was doing just even traditional marketing, okay, I sat between the world of the the 
of the institution. So this is where a lot of, and I was the marketer at a very you know deep, passionate places like, uh, and, you know, an art school at the Boston Conservatory and the medical school at, um, at Harvard. And again, here is this, and my job as the marketing person was to translate these deep passions into things that people could understand. And again, I saw this tension between here are these amazing ideas and these amazing passions. And then the people who, who, you know, that are not that could benefit so much and enjoy that stuff, but they just haven't found, they haven't found the path to each other. Um, and then it really, so there's, this was just, this is a constant theme in my life of how do you, of this kind of translation of sitting between two worlds and operating in between them. And I just, I did it so long that I seem to have become in a lot of ways, this kind of human Rosetta stone where I could, I could, speech, talk about passion in practical terms, but I could also kind of take the practical notion and translate it back to the artists and the scholars and the scientists about like, okay, I get that you're doing this, but okay, let's take in this kind of practical aspect of we need to raise money for it um, and we need to pay for it. So how do we do that? And it really started to come into super sharp focus uh, eight years ago when I had the opportunity to become the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge. And these academics, scientists, scholars, these deeply passionate people. Now here was this very specific event where they needed to, in in many ways, encapsulate an entire body of work in three to 18 minutes uh, for a lay audience, for, for people who are not who didn't share their industry, who didn't necessarily share their passion, but they're they're The whole point of Ted and the ideas worth spending is to ignite that interest in somebody else. Um, and so I wanted to figure out what would be a decoder ring. <laughs> like, and that's really what turned into, uh, the red thread, uh, that the book is all about because the red thread is this idiom from, Nordic languages, generally in general Northern Europe, uh, to talk about you know, the theme, the big idea of something, uh, and its origin story, which I think we talked about last time, was very similar to the to the process that I was leading people through to to do this decoding. And so I I look back at it, you know, to me that you know when you look back, the past is a straight line. It all makes perfect sense to me, though there was no way at all that I could have predicted that this is where I would have ended up or, or what I would have ended up doing or even creating. But it makes perfect sense as I look back on it because I created the thing that I wish I had 30, wow. 35 years ago. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, part of it, I think you probably remember this, when I, I had to give a speech that was 15 minutes. I, yes. I remember I, I hired you because I was like, okay, I don't know how to give a 15 minute speech. That's way harder than giving an hour long speech. Uh, it is. But, but let's get into the concepts in the book. Um, you opened the book by saying the best way to make your idea irresistible. And you said this book could have been one sentence. The best way to make your idea irresistible is to build a story that people will tell themselves about it. The biggest obstacle to inspiring your audience to act is the gap between what you want to say about your idea and what people need to hear about it. To be inspired to act, the human brain needs to hear a specific structure and it all comes down to story. And 
when I, when I read that, I, I couldn't help but think of, of some of the things we learned from Meet's copywriting course, where everything was about shifting the focus from yourself to your audience. Mm. And what I wonder is why people uh, get so stuck on the story they want to tell versus the story that people need to hear about it. Because it's how they see the world. I don't even think that they get, it's just, it is, it is, it is the operating system and a computer can't read its own code. We do not even realize that we are stuck in our story. We don't realize that everything that we say is coming from the point of view of somebody who has already reached this conclusion, already thinks that the idea is great. Um, (laughs) And we don't even realize that we've done it. It's the curse of knowledge made real. Um, and that's, that's, that's it. That's the simplest explanation is that we just don't even realize that we are telling it, you know, we are, we are, we are telling the story that we want to hear because it's the story that makes sense to us full stop. And so we mm-hmm. think it must by definition make sense to other people. Um, and yet that's a known psychological fallacy and loop. Like, you know, we believe that the people around us generally believe the same things we do. And that's, it's actually not true. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's so important that we are clear about our own way of thinking so that we can be clearer about others, because it doesn't mean that we're, uh, it doesn't mean that we're not capable of closing those gaps, but we sure as heck can't close them if we don't know where they are. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that's what that's what it is, is that we just we're operating from a code that we can't see. And the part of what, you know, it's it's you know, if there's a hidden agenda of the book, that's it. If there's kind of a free prize of the book, that's it. That it's a, actually a way to understand your own point of view, your own worldview in a in a in a really cl- cl- clear, I think, way that allows you to have now be able to kind of step back, open that control window into your own operating system and go, Oh, I see what I'm doing here and I see why I'm doing it. And once you understand that, you've got all, all sorts of opportunities available to you. Because sometimes you're going to see things you don't like and then you want to change them. Um, you can see, you sometimes you'll see why you get stuck in patterns and you can change them. Uh, and sometimes you can see where you had strength and power and consistency. Uh, like I, you know, like I said, I solved, I wrote this book because I wanted it. It's, it's a book that solves for my own neuroses. I hundred percent understand that. Um, but when you understand that, you know, actually there is a pattern and a, and a good one you know, for how you've lived your life so far, um, I think there's power in that. And that was really part, part of what's important to me. It's not what I lead with in the book, but it is, it is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it reminds me of one of my mentors said, he said, I don't think you understand your audience as well as you think, because he said, you've never been in an office for the last 10 years. Yes. And, <laughs> I, and you know, because I read a lot about productivity and then it finally occurred to me that he was absolutely right, that, you know, the advice that, you know, is applicable for a single guy is not the same or nearly as effective for a mother with an infant. I, and I, I learned this from one of our former guests who shows up to our mastermind calls with a baby in tow. I'm like, okay, never mind. An hour a day is probably not that realistic for her. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, and this, I probably again comes back to my mother and, and I would say, so I think we talked about this too, that one of the things that I studied um, when I was in college was American studies. And I don't know if American studies found me or I found it because it, it, it is very anthropological in its way of looking at all the uh, all the the forces coming at play at, and for American studies on a particular time period or a particular movement or moment. Um, 
I don't know if I already did that. And therefore it was just a, it was just a validation and a way to, to, to make that kind of more of a, an official path for me or whether that, that I, it would just fit really well. And so when I tried it on as a framework, uh, it continued to work very well. But I think you understand your own perspective and your own self and your own ideas so much better when to the extent possible, you can look at them through others' eyes that uh, I've always just found value in that. And I mean, full, you know, full disclosure that it came from a, it came from kind of a dark place. Um, because, you know, I think while my parents didn't, you know, push me to go to Stanford and say I needed to be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, uh, I was expected to be right. I was expected to be correct. And there was a high price paid in my family for not being right. I mean, it was an emotional one, um, but there was a big focus on being correct and being right. Um, and so you, and my family is also a family of, I forget whose perspective this was originally, where they talk about there's like two cultures at play, you know, a, 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 one of those classic oversimplifying of people into like two groups, but that there's askers and there's guessers where askers ask for what they want and they they tell you exactly what they need and they say, you know, here basically are my operating instructions, follow them and we'll be good. And then there's guessers who are set or basically go, well, guess what I need. And, 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 and it's, and don't consider it proper to be, to, to say it out loud and that you should just know. Well, from a wiring standpoint, you know, at least, how it felt in my family was that I was an asker and everybody else was a guesser. And, um, I actually think that my sister's probably more of an asker than I give her credit for, but, um, but it meant that, you know, that plus my anthropological mother meant that I, I spent a lot of time, uh, anticipating my parents, first and foremost, my sisters, and then eventually, you know, colleagues, coworkers, fellow students, you know, friends, lovers, every, everybody, like I spent and spend a lot of time anticipating other people's reactions and trying to figure out in advance, um, trying to account for the guessers, you know, from an asker's point of view. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I think the, the more that we can, I mean, I don't, one of the things I say to my clients is I overthink so you don't have to. Um, I, that's part of what I really wanted to get through into the book too, was just like, listen, if you, if you, if you can ask, answer these questions about your idea, it's going to be just about as rock solid as you can make it. Um, you know, as you can, as you could, because I've incorporated that like lifetime of lessons on where people are going to pick something apart and where something would, fall apart where an argument where an explanation would fall apart um and it's all baked in i mean i, yeah. I elected not to write the book from that perspective i really wanted to write the how-to really practical book um but you know there's probably three books worth of support for why every piece is exactly the way that it is yeah well let's get into uh the pieces when you say goal problem truth change action these five elements are the answers to the questions your brain everyone asks about ideas so <clears throat> can you walk us through this framework and how we apply it to our ideas 
Yeah. I, so the, the, the story of the, those elements is that they are the, they are the fundamental building blocks of any story. Um, and a, a point of academic inquiry for me still is whether the blocks, these building blocks are what the brain required. And that's why stories have them or that stories have been so built into our society that that's what we've learned to look for, uh, over time. Um, but, they are what they are because of the role that they play in, in how we make sense of information. Um, and the first one, the goal is why somebody would act at all. Uh, because, and the goal as I define it is it's something somebody wants and doesn't yet have. And when we're talking about once upon a time stories, that's when we, the reader, the audience, uh, the, the viewer, the listener, that's when we really start to engage. It may not be where the kind of quote unquote action of the story starts, but it's where our emotional engagement starts. So that's the goal. Um, and that's, that's why somebody would act in the first place to, to achieve a thing. Um, that's what they want. They don't have it yet. So they need to act in order to get it. The next thing that comes into play once upon a time stories and in the story of an idea is a problem, uh, a problem that somebody doesn't know about when they get started. It's, it's the reason why they don't have that thing yet. Right. So if you want a thing and you don't have it, well, there's a reason you don't have it yet. Why, why don't you have it yet? And so the problem is, the problem is rooted there. When we're talking about the, 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 the problem, quote unquote, as, is, as it shows up in the red thread is that it's a problem of perspective, meaning it's a, it's a tension in perspective. It's not a problem per se. It just, it fills the role of the problem, meaning that there's a way that people are looking at the situation right now that's keeping them from seeing another way to be. Um, and so that's what we have to identify. The third thing, third major building block is, you know, that contrast between the way they've been looking and the way they could look, uh, inevitably brings up a conflict or should, uh, cause every great story has you know, what's called a moment of truth, uh, a point of no return, a climax. And my favorite word for it, like total scrabble word, anagnorisis, which is the moment that main character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. And that's where the conflict of any story comes to a head. And so in the story of an idea, uh, back to our conversations earlier, Srini, about, um, you know, these baseline assumptions, there is something about how each of us individually sees the world that when we're in the pursuit of something and we realize that we're looking at the situation differently than everybody else, there is a reason why that is such a problem to us. And that is what I call the truth because it creates that moment of truth. And when those things are all in play, something we want, something we believe and a, a, a contra, you know, two contrasting perspectives, something's got to give. And, you know, where in a once upon a time story, that moment of truth uh, forces a choice, right? That, that means something's going to change. Either you're going to give up what you want or you're going to, stop doing something or start doing something. That's what in, and the red thread is the fourth piece. It's the change. That's the result of that moment of truth. So goal, problem, truth, change. And then, you know, most stories don't stop with a decision. Um, action is the proof of understanding, as I like to say. So uh, that's the fifth piece of the red thread or one of the specific actions that need to be put in play in order to make that change concrete. And all of those actually lead you back to the goal. So while there are five components, one of them is repeated uh, because a story, any story, brain story, once upon a time story, ends back at the beginning when we see whether or not we got 
what we were looking for in the first place? And if we didn't, did we get something that we needed even more instead? So goal, problem, truth, change, action. Uh, like, as I say in the book, they are, they are the things that make us make, make something make sense. They're, why would someone do it? Why don't they have it yet? Why, you know, why is that such a problem for them? What can they do instead, given what they know? Um, how do they do that? And then, all right, what's the final result? Wow. Uh, so I have a couple of questions about this. Uh, one, I wonder is what role does research and, and data play in all of this? So, you know, I can go back to an example, you know, when we were talking earlier about the fact that just because somebody has a problem, it doesn't mean they care enough uh, that they're willing to pay to solve it. Now, I'll give you a concrete example. So we recently launched a course called Attention Mastery because the overwhelming majority of our audience said, you know, which is not surprising given that it's probably everybody's biggest problem these days, that, you know, their challenge was managing their time and their attention because they're constantly distracted. Um, so we created a course and, and it sold relatively well. But, you know, when we were looking at it, I said, wow, people might have this problem. They don't necessarily care enough that they're willing to pay to solve it. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, so where does data come in as, as far as understanding that you've got each of these pieces correct? Or yeah, I mean, yeah. where does, yeah, exactly. So, you know, people go through, you know, surveys, trying to understand what their audience needs or whatever it is. It's pretty standard, you know, sort of market research tactic. Um, but, you know, how do you adapt the data into a red thread? So there's a couple of different ways. Um, and this is when I get to I smile bemusedly because I'm married to a market researcher. I'm married to, you know, researcher and statistician. Um, and so, you know, I've actually talked about this quite a bit because uh, I get this question from clients a lot. They're like, well, how much do I already need to know about this and how much research do I need to do? Um, and, you know, official like, professional market researcher blessed answer and, and which <laughs> you know, is that um, you need to do as much research as you need to do to feel comfortable. Um, and as he would say, what's the, what's the price for not doing the research ahead of time? So that's so that's the that's his official answer. So in a lot of cases, I think it's useful, particularly for you know if this is a high stakes kind of messaging that you're putting together, um, that you're building a lot on it. It's probably worth doing some level of I would say qualitative research to start. Um, and qualitative research is important to start because it is what gives you an understanding of of trends of motivations of questions to answer and as as tom my husband would tell you you know qualitative should always precede quantitative because quantitative research is what you come in afterwards to drill down on something that was revealed from qualitative information now you can do this officially right you can go and hire somebody like tom or edison the company he works for to do that kind of research uh my experience, honestly, is that in the vast majority of cases, doing more research is just a means of procrastination um, mm -hmm. on this because generally, particularly since we're talking about your individual or your company's point of view, you already know enough to answer most of these questions, at least to draft a red thread to start. And then once you've got the elements, it's worth going out back out and, and testing that again, whether that's officially, um, you know, and, pro and professionally or anecdotally, uh, because the, the red thread is designed to get you to something that you can socialize. And that's, 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 that's what I say about it. I mean, and an idea exists in between, uh, there was a really fascinating conversation with Steve Jobs about this kind of the late eighties, early nineties, where he's talking about, um, 
how you need when you're coming up with ideas. You have to, you have to be willing to let it go to see what other people do with it. Um, and the red thread is a way that gets you there, but because it starts with who you're for and what problem that you want to solve with them, there, there is this kind of intersection between what you know for sure is true about the people that you're talking to and the people that you want to have coming to you. And I think that that's an important intersection because you, if you, and this is a lesson I learned and when I was doing nonprofits, so I think it's particularly dangerous for nonprofits because there's money behind these conversations. And what I mean by that is, you know, any nonprofit organization has a mission. It's they gen, you know, it's one of those things that over time, for-profit companies have taken on as like a thing that they've borrowed from the nonprofits, this kind of mission statement thing. But for nonprofits, it's really important because that's exactly the reason why they exist. Um, and <laughs> nonprofits need money. And that money often comes from people with their own agendas and their own mission statements, would you, you know, you could say. And so what what can happen to in a nonprofit is that in the pursuit of money that they need to stay open, they can pull themselves pretty far off mission because they need to get the money. And over time, like, you know, one time here or there isn't going to be a problem, but if you consistently do that, then all of a sudden you've pulled the money away from your core mission and you're ending up doing this kind of mishmash of things instead. And I think that same lesson is true for anybody and, and any organization is that, that you, you want to make sure what you're looking for is a balance between the people that you serve and what you want to serve them. Um, and that if you go too far to what the market wants, quote unquote, um, you'll end up constantly chasing that and never be able to put down roots where you are and not build the, the equity and the, the experience in that, in that place. Um, and at the same time, you don't want to be blind to it because then to your point that we were talking about earlier, then you end up solving a problem that nobody has. Um, yeah. And so it really is about finding that intersection. And, you know, it was really interesting in the early parts of the pandemic, you know, I, let, I saw a lot of people do what I was calling moving to COVID town, meaning rather than stay where they were and find a way to kind of draw new maps from where people were kind of concerned about what does this mean for my job or I've got this new focus on whatever and showing them how whatever they offered, like whatever you offer was still relevant to those people. You just need to draw a different path to it. I saw a lot of people kind of move to COVID town. Like, well, let's, I'm going to completely change what I do and change everything about my messaging because that's where the market is except you've just moved to a new town. Like you don't know where anything is. People don't know you there. Um, it's a lot easier to kind of establish and make really strong connections with what you've already been doing and just draw better maps. And so I think that's a, I think that's a, it, it's a perpetual challenge, but it really does come down to that balance between what do you already know what do you want to be true and what is actually true? And I think that's a, it's a fairly personal decision of how much research you do beforehand um, and what the nature of the research is afterwards. Yeah. 
So there's one line in particular, and this is probably my my favorite line for the entire book. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this. You say you can't create the create change, only the mm. conditions for it. Sure, you can inspire someone to act. Depending on the situation, you could even force them. Action is occasional and often externally driven, but change is something quite different. As I like to remind people, when two truths fight, only one lives. Our brains cannot really let conflicts like that stand. We will change in order to relieve that mental discomfort. Yep. And, you know, I couldn't help but think about sort of something as simple as sort of everything we know about productivity and attention management, for mm -hmm. example. Yep. We have all the information we need. You know, we've had Cal Newport here three or four times uh, as a podcast guest. We have distraction blockers galore. So, you know, like you said, we have the conditions to oh, yeah. actually change that behavior. But we don't, you know, and yet people don't. Yep. It's because they want something else more. Full stop. I mean, I, that, that I am so convinced of this, like that was my, my, you know, my sole foray onto a TEDx stage was about this, where I say the problem isn't that you don't love your goals enough. It's that you don't hate your problems more. And, um, and it's a lesson I learned at Weight Watchers to go back to my, to my bio. Um, the, it is a, and it's a very hard truth to accept. But fundamentally, and this is, it's very dramatic, you know, in, in, in weight loss or health management. And I would imagine the same thing is true with attention and time management. Um, that the reason you're not doing something is because in a moment, there is something you want to do more. And if you don't, if you don't bring that clarity to yourself, if you're not honest with yourself about that thing is that, that you may want both things, but in when push comes to shove, one of them's winning out. Um, and are, are you comfortable with that? That's what it's going to come down to. Because if you're not doing what you need to do just to, to manage your time, if you're not doing what you need to do to manage your health the way that you want to, it, it's because there is something else that in that moment, you actually want more. What is that thing? And it could be comfort. It could be reassurance. It could be I don't know, like it can be so many different things, but you know, that when two truths fight, only one lives piece again, is something that, that I, I called forth from my own experience because it's how I, it, it's, it's that kind of clarity about my own motivations, about surfacing those baseline assumptions and really forcing them and to choose where that's in that moment where you can go, but I don't want to be someone who chooses that. Okay. Well, now that you know that that's what you're doing, now you, now it's more, much more of a conscious choice. Um, because most of the time we just don't let ourselves confront those things. And that's, but it is, it is a, can we assume, I, mean, I forget who says it, but there's, you know, somebody who says it's a mark of intellect, you know, of, of intellect that you can hold two truths in your head simultaneously. Um, absolutely. And still, but there will always come a moment where you're going to have to choose one of them and one of them will win out. And I, I just, you know, if there's one thing that I've truly learned in this life is that, that, your ability to surface that tension in your mind and be honest with yourself about what you're choosing um, is where the power of all change actually lies. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a, a really beautiful and, and fitting end uh, to our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
it's their point of view. I think there are, and this is a thing that's gotten sharper and sharper over you know the last few years for me, is that two people can be solving the same problem. They can have a very similar answer. Um, but nobody has lived the life that you have. And, and these individual components, you know, they are what I talk about in the book, but each of them reflects a a point of, of separation, a fork in the road, uh, between different people on what on, you know, what could look at like very similar paths, but it really comes down to the fact that literally no one has your exact same point of view and your ability to surface that point of view, to live it, to embody it, to articulate it, to be it, to be true to it, to honor it, to further it. It's the people who do that, that are the ones that you say, at least that I say are truly unmistakable. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything else that you're up to? Uh, everything else is at tamsandwebster.com. I'm literally the only Tams and Webster in the universe, so it's easy <laughs> to find me. Um, yes. Thanks mom and dad for a weird first name. <laughs> um, uh, but everything's there. And if they want to go straight to more information about the book, they can go to redthreadbook.com that will land me, land them on their page, my home page. And it will land them on my website anyway, but there they can go to, they can find it. They can get some extra goodies, uh, for ordering it if they want. And, uh, I, I am happy that people are responding well to it. So it is, is delightful. And I hope your listeners find it useful. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.